Hello everyone, it's Friday the 20th of August and welcome to episode 69 of the Kite Podcast with me, Will Evans. And me, Ben Eagle. Producer Becky is away this week, so who knows what will happen today without our leader to keep us in check. <laughs> Plus Chris is back, so that's, um, yeah, that, that is relevant today. In, in usual <laughs> organised style, Becky planned today's episode to a T. <laughs> And Becky, I know you're listening, so this is this is probably it's going to come as a bit of a shock. But um, in usual kite podcast team style, we're doing something a bit different this morning. Never fear, Becky, though, because I'm uh, we are we're still focusing on climate today, um, and we're honing in on the recent IPCC report. Who better to join us then this morning than Kite's head of sustainability, Rachel Maidley Davis, and Kite's managing partner, John Allen? As always, of course. We're joined by everybody's favourite dairy market analyst, Chris Walkland, who is now back from his holiday. Chris, how was your holiday? Good, to, It's good to have you back. Um, let's go over to you for the milk market report. Yes, I'm back. Did you miss me? I said, did you miss me? Well, obviously, I'm I'm very sad today because my podcast bride isn't here, but it's only for a week, so I think I'll survive. Anyway, to this morning's podcast, and where indeed am I? Well, half of me is bringing you my podcast from one place and half of me from another, but both of them make for very, very interesting points about today's subject matter. So the first half of me is at the HQ of NASA believe it or not, which has just released a report saying, and I quote, Europe is the only region to report a reduction in methane emissions over the last 20 years. Yep, you heard that correctly. Methane emissions from Europe have dropped despite all our supposedly horrible methane emitting cows. And the other half of me is at the porky pie factory of big oil where news has just emerged that methane emissions figures from said big oil are double what they've reported. A new posh-sounding report from posher-sounding people has, and I quote, found some significant discrepancies between expected methane emissions from the major oil and gas producers based on their disclosures and policies and how they are performing in reality. Well, knock me down with a feather. (laughs) Still, I've got some brilliant news about this podcast too, because I'm making an important pledge today to everyone that this podcast is also on the road to net zero by 2025. That's right. Just before half past eight this evening, we will be net zero for terrible jokes and unfunny banter. (laughs) There'll no longer be any pathetic attempts at humour or witty rhetoric because apparently the numerous sighs of exasperation about how awful they are is warming the planet even more than the cows. (laughs) Is that really a promise, Chris? Please, please make that a promise. Yes, that's a promise. No net zero rubbish jokes. And to emphasise our commitment to recycling... If we do happen to tell any funny ones, we'll just keep repeating them over and over again. (laughs) Anyway, to this week's report and raise your glasses to another moderately positive week, everyone. 
because the GDT turned positive for the first time in nine events, but only just by 0.3%. Still, up is up. Whole milk powder still dropped, and that has contributed to falling EU whole milk powder prices, but SMP and butter both increased. What is interesting is that Arla's medium heat skim milk powder settled out over a significant $3,000 threshold or £2,200 in our money. And that's actually higher than Fonterra's skim milk powder for the first time in years. I don't know why, but nevertheless, uh, it's good news. In Europe, across the nine powder and butter categories from France, Germany, and the Netherlands, there were seven positive price movements, only three drops and two neutral ones. So I think we'll take that as a sign of positivity too. Uh, the average price for butter is closing in on that magical 4,000 euro threshold, but isn't quite over it yet. Uh, elsewhere, some traders, though, are reporting stable rather than rising markets on cream and butter, because I suspect, and for want of a timeless European expressions, buyers don't like it up and Mr. Manrin. So there's a degree of resistance. Uh, there's further gains on cheese. Edam and Gouda and Mott's have lifted again, so more progress there. Uh, some progress, too, on the future, some useful gains. Um, butter up nicely, skim about the same. Uh, in the UK, cream is still in the 160 range, but I hear this precious little about, so the price is rather irrelevant if you can't get it. Uh, but in Europe, it's uh, a decent 5,000 euros a tonne or 170 to 180 per kilo in our currency. That's still way higher than UK, though. And high retail demand and low milk volumes are to blame. And also for a pretty high spot market of 33 to 34. So lots to be positive about again, I think. Um, although we do have to be cautious about that buyer resistance. So that's it from me, one half of me at Natter with some good news on EU's methane. The other half outside big oil. Fancy them being a pack of bleeding liars, eh? <laughs> and now it's over to Jumping Jack, Rachel, she's a gas, 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 and John with more <laughs> methane-related debate. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you, Corporal Jones. Um, Rachel, summarising the IPCC report isn't exactly a simple task. But <laughs> John, three and a half, half, half thousand pages. I hate <laughs> Go on, Rachel. Go on. Some light bedtime reading for you uh, over the weekend, right? Um, but from 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 a dairy point of view, uh, what were the key points of interest? I think from a dairy point of view that there's two big ones and actually actually it's a bit of a cop out but the first big message for dairy is actually the same for everyone else that we are the report was a big sort of code red for humanity mm. that if we don't get our act together as humans and that's everyone dairy sector included um, but also the big business that Chris has sort of talked about this shortly um, 
But the fact that there is still time as well to change this sort of and to reverse climate change through targeted and sustained reductions in emissions of uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And that it was really clear that although we're heading towards um, this real sort of code red situation, that there's still time to change and we can still stabilise global temperatures in 20 to 30 years. So if you think about it, the big message for us as an industry is that um, what we're already doing to decarbonise is really important, but actually we still need to do a bit more. Mm -hmm. And actually we've got a real sort of role to play in terms of um, global negative warming. So that's the first message. The second one, which is a really quite interesting and sort of pricks our ears up, is there is a recognition of GWP star as a metric and it's a role for accounting for methane emissions more accurately. Um, so I think that was, it, it wasn't a recommendation, but it was a recognition of it, which is a bit of a step change. So I think that was the key thing that's a little bit more specific to dairy, for example, the ruminant sector more largely. Okay. John, we've had quite a lot of these IPCC updates now, um, and we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. What for you was different about this one? I think I'm coming on this uh edition with my glass not even half full I I, I think it's uh, brimming over um, and the, the reason is that uh, if you remember in May we had uh, Frank Mitlohner from uh, UC Davis talking about um, the global warming star uh, option and uh, what he basically says is that methane degrades in the environment over 10 years. So therefore, you can't say that when you keep an animal and it produces methane, it just keeps on adding more and more to the climate uh, warming. So you don't get that. We accept that methane is more potent than uh, carbon dioxide. But what it does is that because it degrades, then we've, over, we've been overestimating the carbon footprint of dairy and meat because well, you're, you're a beef farmer, and uh, I think this is really important for the meat industry as well. Um, so we've now got the situation where there's a recognition with the IPCC that it's a scientific recommendation, that they understand and acknowledge that methane does degrade. And so what that means is that effectively there's two things. One is um, meat, uh, ruminants actually have been overestimating their carbon footprint and we'll talk about you know how, how we talk about that in a minute with Rachel because I think it's important not to just get carried away and say yippee pop, uh, that's the problem over um, but the second thing is amazingly and and Rachel made reference to it they the you can actually they acknowledge now in the report that ruminants can contribute would you believe to global cooling so that's the first one. And I hope we, we start talking about what ruminants can do to help global cooling. Because as we have, basically, if we have fewer and fewer animals and ruminants, but we produce more the same amount of meat or the same amount of milk, then we will cool the planet because we will be taking methane out over the next 10 years. That is really, really positive. I think we've got to be very careful how we handle it because it hasn't been accepted by policymakers. And that was the recommendation in the report that it's there, they accept it, but they've then left it open for policymakers to decide what to do with it. Yeah, I really recommend to listeners that you do go back and, and listen to that Frank Mitlerner episode if you haven't already. Um, but uh, Rachel, and I know that if, if, if listeners have listened to that, then they might have a better idea. But if they haven't, can we just uh, just deal with those terms first of all, GWP 100, GWP star, um, what are those? 
Yeah, I probably won't do as a coherent job as, as Mike did. But um, in terms of GWP 100, so this is the standard method for converting um, non-CO2 emissions, such as methane, to a CO2 equivalent. So it applies a sort of global, global warming potential over 100 years. Um, so this is applied to all alternative gas, which does include methane. So carbon dioxide, for example, has a score of one, methane 28, nitrous oxide 265. So in other words, methane, if we just focus on methane, is 28 times more potent than one kilo of carbon dioxide over 100 years. So that's how GWP 100 deals with it. Now, GWP star, um, as we've discussed, it's a more recent metric that addresses how short and long-lived gases warm the atmosphere. So if we just focus on methane again, methane warms at 28 times the rate of carbon dioxide, which we've already learned through GWP 100, but only for 10 years. And that's the key difference here. And this is what GWP star delivers. Um, hence why, um, arguably, um, GWP 100 handles methane incorrectly, as John's just said, because um, basically when it measures its impact on global warming um, at the end of 100 years, that methane actually is no longer causing strong warming because it's almost been destroyed. So that's what GWP star does compared to GWP 100. Mm, that's a really good explanation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, John's already alluded to some of the benefits, but I mean, from, from where you're sitting, uh, what, what would be, um, if, if you were sitting with a group of policymakers right now to convince them, um, what would be your argument? Yeah, I think... It definitely refocuses the lens, isn't it? And I think in many ways, it, it's thinking about its impact, not just on methane, but on other gases. Because what it does, yeah. it creates a better understanding for the real emissions impacts yeah. on movement farmers, but actually the real emissions impact on those other gases that perhaps we're not prioritising as much at the moment. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with that. It, it, because when we did the calculations a couple of years ago, the, the, using this calculation, and we're doing some more calculations now, roughly take out the carbon, the overall the carbon footprint drops by about 30%, which sounds brilliant. But what happens is that nitrous oxide element of it goes up and that becomes more prominent. And therefore, that's what we're going to have to focus on. And I think Rachel's exactly right. The, the policymakers will then start focusing on nitrous oxide, which is great. And that, that's sensible. We need to do things. Um, and I think that would be a really good argument to take to the policymakers to say that this is what we now need to do to adopt it. Because, uh, Rachel, I, I want to just chew this over. I, I wonder, it, will policymakers see this as a bit of a oh dear right we've made a bit of a do-do here they've altered the calculations we could be accused of making all these recommendations based on the wrong science or or will they actually you know and, and farmers might want them to eat humble pie and say oh we got it wrong we'll have to leave you alone but i don't think that's a very sensible thing but what what what, do you, what how do you think policymakers could handle it you know and what yeah, it's a really good point. I'd like to hope that people don't lose sight of actually what we're trying to achieve here, um, that it, it's not for party politics, it's not for saving face, but actually what it is, it, it's about decarbonising and reducing our emissions overall. And actually, I, I think that's the key, isn't it, is, is that people forget that you know, this isn't something that's going to go away. It's not for any sort of one-upmanship, that it's real and it's about sort of reducing our global greenhouse gas emissions so i'd like to think that they'd be more sensible however we know that sometimes it's not as simple as that it, it's you know it's about appearance um but i th i think 
I think it's a really good point. Um, I, I suppose the benefit is all the advice so far has tend to come from more advisory boards. Obviously, it's some with a sort of arm's length government um, sort of uh, relationship, but there hasn't been any direct policy yet, actually, from government in, that really sort of targets, especially in terms of agriculture and ruminant agriculture. So I'd like to hope there is an opportunity. But I think it is always very difficult, isn't it, when there's a real step change. Um, but I, th- I think with anything, when we're looking at sort of climate science, transparency is key because it's it's evolving all the time. We're learning new things. Um, science is developing. So I'd like to hope that they will engage with that. Yeah, but I, I, it's interesting that immediately I'd like Chris to come in and give us some free Free, Chris, PR advice here. <laughs> he's, he's just walked out, listeners. He's, he's gone. I think he's, he's gone. fainted. <laughs> he's, looking at, he's looking at the word of the dictionary. <laughs> so, so here you are, Chris. Here's your dilemma. So, so we've got good news for the uh, you know, ruminant industry. But immediately you get the BBC and others like with their own agendas piling in and say, oh, yippee-doo, this means that now we can get ruminants off the planet and then we'll cool the planet and we can avoid actually making difficult decisions on other things. It gives us some breathing time. I mean, you know, I can't believe that they piled in straight away. And that's the agenda that others like the vegans will go on to try and, uh, you know, if you're in their camp, they'd now be thinking, oh, dear, oh, gosh, this messes us up. Right, what do we do? You know, so how would you, from a PR point of view, Chris, handle it as an industry? Because, yeah, we're going to sit here and think, oh, this is good news. And then they're going to sit there and say, oh, yeah, it's good news for us because we're going to pile in and say, get rid of ruminants. And and the Joe public's so confused by all of this that that at the end of the day, it'll be a matter of who do they believe? Yeah, well, it is. Well, firstly, I'd like to say that there's only room for one star in this industry, and that, of course, is me. <laughs> um, you're on so fire. The C- you're CW star. You're on fire today, Chris. You can't holiday more often. <laughs> Secondly, His dad I- jokes keep coming. <laughs> Secondly, what, what I would say is that there are so many numbers banded about. Yeah. Um, and I use the big oil one as indication that there are so many stats thrown around from from all industries, lies, damn lies, and statistics, don't they say? Yeah. And I think one thing that we have to that we can do, as far as the public is concerned, to make things simple is to tell them to simply go to Cumbria, go to Devon, go to Wales, go right. to Scotland, and look out the bloody window. Mm. Yeah. Um, because they see the countryside that is kept by animals and they see or we can tell them that 300 cows emitting methane that lasts for 12 years is normally surrounded by 300 acres of fields and hedges and trees and everything absorbing that carbon. Then go to the middle of a city or imagine you're in Los Angeles or Tokyo or wherever and look out the bloody window because there's nothing there that's going to absorb that carbon like a farm would do. And I think we're probably at the stage now where we have to um, just tell them the basics very simply, forget the stats, because everybody's confused by it. And there are different stats um, 
you look at agriculture, you look at dairy, <clears throat> there's however, however many, six or eight different carbon calculations, and you hear from farmers, mm-hmm. you know, if they use two different carbon calculators, they get two rapid, um, radically different results. Mm. So no wonder people are confused. So I would say as an industry, let's keep it simple, let's keep it logical, and then we've got an opportunity to communicate with the public. You'd like that, Rachel, wouldn't you? Because you like your biodiversity. I completely agree. And, I, and I'm a strong advocate, and this is probably how, obviously, we're not dairy at home with beef and sheep, but the idea is, is that ruminants are really key in how we manage the natural landscape here and actually deliver in terms of... Um, habitat as well so you know ruminants are really good grazers and they're really key and important for certain habitat and I think that's the trouble is that sometimes we lose sight of this broader role and I see that you know the most sustainable farms are like jigsaw pieces you've got all these different pieces together Mm. um, and that's how they become sustainable but also we can still produce food which we all need um, but also we can take we can maintain environment and I think it's really key that we don't just focus on the methane that we see this like like Chris says, it's more overarching thing. Um, and actually how it plays into other industries. You know, Chris has just pointed out, you know, some of the biggest sort of touristic areas in the country. Uh, you know, we can't underestimate that that's really key for the economy yeah. as well. So I think it's really important how we fit agriculture in a much broader piece and perhaps don't always look to um, insular, I think. Mm, yeah. The other thing I would say is that we've got COP26 coming up uh, this autumn. Uh, next year, of course, we're going to have COP out. 26 where the politicians <laughs> pop out of all the pledges that they've made at cop 26 because they can't deliver them without significant significant impact on consumers mm. i mean let's forget food and agriculture let's take boilers mm. how the hell are they going to phase out boilers yep how is greta thunberg going to go to poland when it's freezing cold and say i'm sorry poles You've got to stop using your coal fires. You'll have to freeze this winter. I mean, all of these are massive political policy decisions that don't have an easy solution without trillions of dollars behind them. Okay. Rachel, you started um, today's episode by talking about that sense of urgency, um, which comes across very strongly in the IPC report um i suppose with with farmers in mind and with policymakers in mind how and it's, it's a really difficult question but how do we keep accelerating that pace of change despite all that i think first of all the thing about farmers I, th- I think it's all about communication engagement however and this is a, a real big thing for me we need to understand that even if gwp star is applied and becomes a real metric for us to use it does not mean that nothing it doesn't mean that nothing needs to change and i think that's the risk isn't it that farmers think it's their savior we still need to decarbonize so that's a message we need to keep on pumping through and i think it will remain quite high on the agenda because it is on the retailers agenda it's on the processors agenda it's on the industry stakeholders agenda um so i think there will be lots of rhetoric that will keep it there Policymakers, for me, it's it's again, it's about as an industry, about us engaging those things that Chris said before about actually all those other things we deliver. It's about engaging as much with those things as well as what we can do in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and the impacts on global warming. So I think it, it's just about talking about it, um, but actually being solution driven, driving those solutions, talking about the solutions, not the problems and how we can do it. 
John, where's the um, where's the positive in all this to take away? Well, <clears throat> massive positive because I think we've got science on our side now, and I think that gives us a real um, brilliant case to argue with policymakers and get the narrative away from those who've got their own agendas against ruminants. So I think we need to use it in that policymaking environment. Take Rachel's point. Um, we're already working on masses of sustain, uh, carbon reduction uh, plans because of uh, scope three uh, scope uh, three reporting. So that's all going to sort itself out. That's well in hand now. And uh, the supply chain's taking action on all of that. So it's really positive. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it was a good week um, for ruminants, um, both dairy and beef. Yeah. Very good. I, I think the fact we, we need to co- we need to communicate the fact that the industry is doing one heck of a lot. Yeah, yeah. On on reducing carbon and also doing one heck of a lot as far as its responsibilities are concerned. Yeah, and it's not lying. It's not doing a big oil. It's not lying. It's yeah, it, it, it's Chris. And the other thing we're going to do it uh, with some more podcasts later on. I think there's a really positive story as well that we can do as an industry, and that is to help other nations around the world who produce dairy. We had this episode on uh, India. Well, I think we're going to talk about Africa uh, later on in September. Yeah, and, that, and if we did that. That is so positive. It's a win, win, win all the way around. We're helping people produce more sustainable food. And actually, we're also making contributing now to global cooling. What could be better news than that? And there's the mic drop moment. Um, I see we have time for today, but a very big thank you to all our guests, Rachel Madeley-Davis, John Allen and Chris Walkland. Yes, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back with producer Becky next Friday. But for now, it's goodbye from all of us here.